five, four, three, two, one. John. I'm John Mejias in New York. I'm Zach Smith in uh, Los Angeles. And this is Weed Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist. Except this week, where we talk to Carolina Miranda. Carolina is an art editor and a writer. This episode, we're talking about. I feel like the anthropologist that's just there to record the shit show for humanity. Like, it's just, that's really what I'm there to do. It'll be cool to have somebody besides an artist on. Uh, talk about art. <laughs> well, good. Thank you for having me. I'm actually get to be in my house today, which is rare because Carolina is in LA. Hi, Carolina. Hey, how's it going? And Carolina is in LA because she works for the LA Times. So yeah. that makes sense and it's really convenient for them. Yeah. <laughs> right. well, I usually work for my house. I don't usually. You said go you had office. an editor dealing, talking to you today on the way out the door. And yeah, I imagine I went, this makes no sense because it's Sunday, number one, and because it's 2016. But I imagine he opened the door like Perry White. It was like, God damn it, Carolina, get in here. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even that attractive. It's just kind of like, hey, so what's happening? And blah, 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 next week. And it's hard to sneak out of that. I do this thing sometimes where I try to slink out of a back staircase so nobody can find me as I leave. But Wait, you were literally in the building. Right? I was in the building. Oh, the there LA was Times a building. Today. There oh is my a God. LA Times building. Yeah, just down here. I mean, I know there's a building. <laughs> I didn't realize you were ever in it. Like, no, I, I go in like once a week to admire my pile of unopened mail. <laughs> on a Sunday? <laughs> no, it's Friday. It's Friday? Oh, what yeah, because we always record on a Sunday. So I'm like, what's going on here? I don't know what day it is. I'm a painter. I don't deal with I know. mundane realities. When I, was a, when I was a freelancer, I could, I lived like that. But unfortunately, now I'm <laughs> it's Friday, right? tethered to working man time. <laughs> you know the fox and the hedgehog? Thing. Mm-mm. I don't know. Okay. Am I missing? I, no, no. Am I supposed to know that? <laughs> this is not a current event. So you're all, you're in the clear. Okay, thank God. Uh, fox and the Hedgehog is like an old, it might even be like Plato or something. It's a very old idea of like, the fox knows many things, the hedgehog knows one thing very well. Like, oh, yeah. And it's about like different kinds of thinkers or writers. Mm-hmm. And it's like some kinds of like fields, like math requires hedgehogs yeah. a lot and other fields. But I always thought like as a writer, not only are you right about a bunch of different things. Yeah, I'm total fox, yeah. Yeah, but you also, you're total I know fox. a lot of things badly. Yeah. <laughs> but also, even when you're writing about one thing, you tend to bring in all this context from other stuff about it. You know, I you're try. like, you yeah. always compare like this thing to like some other thing that's not even in that field, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that like growing up, you were like in LA, but you were or in OC, but you're also like, go in all these other places. Yeah. Do you feel like that kind of informed the way you think about stuff? Is like- I mean, I always feel like, I feel like I always think about my job and what I do is like, I'm a translator. You know, it's like being the kid of immigrants, you're often in the position of translating popular culture to your parents because maybe they're not totally familiar with it. Right, yeah. And then in all of the different places, like we moved around so much and we were always the new kid and you always had to kind of find that point of connection and how could that point of connection relate to an experience you already had that was maybe completely different. So yeah, you're right. I totally am about connecting these kind of disparate experiences and relating one thing to another. And also because I think that serves a translation purpose. You know, someone who doesn't know anything about art might want to know what the experience of looking at a painting 
is like without me referencing other paintings. Right. I might want to reference the sky or the weather or a national park or a really crazy movie. And I'm kind of restless that way. It's like if I'm in one place too long, I kind of start to go a little bonkers and need to go on an adventure. I mean, what's nice about that is you can kind of reinvent yourself each time a little bit. Yeah. You know, you're like, okay, clean slate. No one knows me. (laughs) What you don't know is I'm a champion knife thrower. (laughs) Well, I mean, in my case, it was always like, hopefully no one will realize I'm a nerd. But that usually never really worked. (laughs) Because I went to a high school that didn't have those dynamics. But I figured you went to a bunch of schools. You would have seen different... Were they different, or they all kind of seem like a bunch of kids I don't know and me in the corner? Like, Yeah, I mean, it was really... They each had their own dynamic. I mean, I went to schools, like, in... When we lived abroad, sometimes we would go to schools built especially for the Western kids. Mm-hmm. And so everyone was kind of a stranger with everyone else because mm. you're all a foreigner in Saudi Arabia or Iran. Like, none of you are from there. You're all from somewhere else. And you all know that you're probably not going to be there for very long. And kids come and go because their parents... It was like summer like, camp? Kind of, yeah, it was like this little... It was this very sort of transient experience. So it was almost like there wasn't time for those kind of institutions that form in schools to kind of form... In South Africa, I went to, like, actually a local South African school. Hmm. And there was a little bit more of that. But it was also a very strict school. So there, it almost, like, there there wasn't as much opportunity. What was that even like? Because it would have been, like, was that during apartheid? It was during apartheid, yeah. And we counted as white. And um, So were there other people in the school who were international kids who counted as white who weren't white? Like, were obviously, like, super? Yeah. You know, the companies obviously weren't going to hire African-American engineers to go work. Right, but I mean, what about, like, were there people from India or, I don't know, like, anybody Uh, who was just, like... mostly, I mean, probably the most that pushed it that I remember was, you know, there was, like, a bunch of Mexican kids who were you know, on the more indigenous looking side. Yeah. But they were considered American. So, right. you know, it, it you kind of, yeah, you got the pass. <laughs> and it was a very strict school. It had corporal punishment. They would beat you, with, they would beat you with rulers if you misbehaved. Or they would do things like you'd have to go stand outside the classroom in the hallway for like an hour. And the school was like an outdoor school. So if it was like a rainy day, you'd have to go stand, stand outside. In the rain. Oh my God. It was pretty ferocious. The um, worst and most inventive one I ever heard was this guy. I guess he was like a boomer, but he went to this really strict school where they like, if you did something bad, he would make you run a lap in a World War I gas mask. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, that's like a great combination of like, Cruel, but unusual. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> really you know? Unusual. Like, <laughs> it's almost like a like a German experimental film, yeah. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> it was my friend. Some it was some other podcast. And somebody was saying like any German making art is just automatically funny as soon as you realize they're German. Like it <laughs> it starts to stop being serious and just because anyway. <laughs> we digress. <laughs> so at a certain point you decide you're going to be, you went to school for Latin American studies. Yeah. According to Wikipedia or Uh-oh. something. Uh-oh. Um, really? I'm on Wikipedia? Or something. I don't really? know. Okay. We did my, we did our homework. I'm out there. But, so did you want to be like a journalist or a writer or you just wanted... The journalism was something I stumbled into, speaking of my nerdy youth, <laughs> is... You wanted to major in stamps? I wanted to write. I did collect stamps for a while. Holy oh, shit. You guys. I was, a, I was a class A fucking nerd. How it many was like stamps so bad. I played the trombone. 
It was like, I was so nerdy. I don't know how many, you know, it's like I never stuck with it for too long. I wanted to be a professor and teach history. That was what I wanted to do uh, in high school. I was kind of a history nerd. And that was what I thought I would do. And then purely by accident, it was like I had this job babysitting for this family and a friend of theirs happened to be over who was a journalist and we were sitting around talking and he was asking me, you know, what I was interested in. And uh, summer was approaching and he was like, hey, do you know how to type? And I said, yeah, I'd taken like typing in, in middle school, you know, on the manual type. Journalist. You can be a reporter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he's like, do you know how to type? And I said, yeah. And he's like, great. I was just in Russia and I need someone to transcribe these like 30 cassette tapes, like two hour cassette tapes. Oh, wow. And I was like, awesome, summer job, like way better than going and slinging pies at like Polly's Pies, which is what like a lot of my friends are doing or working at Disneyland because this was Orange County. Right. And so I was like, oh, I'd much rather do this. I'm sitting in an air conditioned office. I don't have to deal with food. And so I transcribed all these tapes and it was this thing like listening to him interview all of these people was really interesting. And this is the early 90s. You know, it's like early it's probably mm, 89 or 90. It's around the time the wall is falling, right, yeah. like Russia's opening up. It's this moment, like this cultural shift. He was a contributor to Playboy. He used to do, it was Robert Shear. He used to do Q&As for Playboy and political cool. journalist. Uh, he now runs a website called Truth Dig. And listening to all of these interviews, I was like, well, you know, this is way more interesting than being a history professor. Like right. you can actually kind of cover history as it happens. Right. And that kind of, Gave me my first, you know, I'd never worked on the high school paper despite, you know, my nerd credentials. I'd never done any of that kind of stuff. And so when I got to college, and I, ironically, I went to a college that didn't even have a journalism program. I ended up, I'd already applied to college. I was going to study history. But I started working on the school paper. And then after I graduated, I got an internship. And then I got an assistant position and then kind of did it that way. But that was kind of the shift of like, oh, I don't have to sit in some classroom teaching People. I can just be out there talking to historical <laughs> figures as part of my job. This would be way more interesting. So that was that was kind of the the revelation it moment. Makes sense. Yeah, it's kind of curious the way life kind of. Yeah. And it was all from like, can you type? So I always tell everyone, I'm like, learn how to fucking type. <laughs> you never know what Step could come one. of it. Step one. Chapter one. <laughs> I know. I once met a writer for the New Yorker who started off in the typing pool. Back I mean, that's the way pool. it is, right? I mean, that's the way it... Yeah, now there's no typing pool. Now you yeah. got to be brilliant the minute you graduate or something. That's why all, all journalism is great now. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till you see my list of, you know, 17 yamas that look like Jeff Koons. <laughs> I'm going to kill him with that. I mean, that's interesting you bring that up because it seems like I could be wrong, but you kind of escaped that era. You never wrote clickbait. I mean, I've written some clickbait. I mean, nobody's above it these days. But I mean, okay, then I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, I don't know about all the Florida stuff and all the stuff, but it seemed like you were blogging about art in a sort of like, hey, that's neat kind of way, and then you kind of like moved, at least in terms of writing about art, you moved into... You kind of got to the side door and like you didn't... Totally. I didn't study art. I never took a single art history course in college. I'm a total fraud. I can't draw for shit. You know, so I came to it out of this interest just because I've always liked art and my husband likes art and we would go to museums and it just kind of, and it was something that I felt like I could translate. Right, yeah. I could translate the experience of seeing art into words. Did your art 
writing start as the blog, or did it? Started it- off interestingly. Um, I worked for a while as a reporter at Time Magazine, where I was right. general assignment. So literally, it would be one week I'd be You're doing like, that. Girl can type. <laughs> 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 Let's put her on general assignments because exactly. that's what we need. <laughs> that's exactly how it worked. And that time was one of those places where it was like one week I'd be like rounding up like Al Qaeda lawsuits in the United States, and then the next week it would be like interview Scarlett Johansson about working with Woody. You know, Alan, I'd be like, Foxy. Yeah. usually over the phone and with some publicist going, you have 10 minutes. Yeah, everybody always says those like celebrity interviews suck. The celebrity interviews are the so worst. they're so controlled. Yeah, they're yeah. the worst. Yeah, and you have some publicists, five more minutes. This will be the last question. You know, like stuff like that. And so I was at Time for a while and I was really interested in arts and culture, but the culture section of Time is very small. Like nation and yes, politics is. is the bread and butter Right. of the magazine and so I took a buyout and sort of as a freelancer I started doing like a lot of travel writing and writing about Florida and so this travel magazine in Florida started commissioning me to write stories about the art scene there because one of the challenges they had had was finding a travel writer who knew how to write about Was art. this because of Basel happening or was it? Yeah, it was like Basel was sort of cooking. This is like Basel had already been going on. This is like 2007. Mm-hmm. Basel has been cooking. You know, you have the De La Cruz collection is now building its museum. You know, it was like getting sort of bigger and bigger. Oh, galleries were opening. Uh, so stuff was brewing in Miami. And so I, I started just getting these assignments mm-hmm. to cover, you know, I covered art, I covered jazz, I did profiles. I In between, I did, you know, like pl- fluffy stuff on luxury hotels. Right. Like, you know, you can get a butt facial at the Ritz or, you know. Like just, I mean, I actually, like I really appreciate that on some level because I felt like, Reading them together on the blog mm-hmm. or on aggregators that you know, you do like a post that was like a yeah. gazillion things, and the thing is, I always feel like art has to compete with those stuff. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like if somebody's like doing a weird art piece where they feel your butt and you can get a butt facial, yeah. like two <laughs> doors away, then your piece about where someone feels your butt has to compete with that. Exactly. World I mean, that's and where so, like art, you know, sometimes thinks it's really weird. But if you spend time in the real world, you realize that usually the real world is infinitely weirder. Right. Which is why I'm like, I, I always appreciated that. Like, you didn't really draw a line because, because no. I, I mean, I feel like if it's amazing because it's in an art gallery, it's not amazing. Has always been. You yes. Know, like, agreed. Like a banana peel in an art gallery is a banana peel in an art gallery. It's right. Not. And it, it is like, and then you'd have a photo of a or bunch of bananas. Like, yeah, I mean, I remember going to Chelsea once, and there was that whole Oris Fisher piece of the hole in the gallery floor, and everyone's like, "Oh, what a genius! He dug out the gallery floor. What a statement he's making about the gallery." I'm like, dude, I can go to any empty lot in Bushwick and see like a giant fucking hole. Like, really? <laughs> <laughs> like, is it really that? Like, can we we really ask ourselves like, is this really that interesting? But you know, it's a whole recontextualization of the gallery space. And yada, I will yada, not yada. speak ill of a living artist on the podcast. Yeah, okay. But you well, can. I can. <laughs> <laughs> can uh, you can you at least not approve of those are rules? Well, you can claim I am because no one will see the video. Uh, okay, so they were letting you write about art. Mm-hmm. How much writing were you doing? Was it mostly reporting? Like mostly I go to a place and there's art. 
And then I tell people, or is it mostly we're getting to do writing where you'd be like, this is what I think about it. And I'm No, in those days it was like mostly, you know, it was like do a piece on sort of the Miami art scene time to Basel or do a profile of this guy who just opened a new jazz club or... You were letting people know it existed. Yeah, you know, and a lot of it was magazine work. And so I, I got to be kind of writerly. Yeah. But it wasn't critical of like, oh, go see this over that or... Yeah. Certainly, you always apply some critical eye to it because you're going to feature some places course, yeah. and not others. But yeah, it was more about just sort of telling trend stories and here's what's happening. And it was all pretty straightforward. So how and why did the blog get started? Like, was it because you, there was stuff you could do or just like you felt like putting it all in one place? Well, or? I started the blog for a couple of reasons. One, it was after working at Time for so many years, it was like I'd always had an interest in art, but I hadn't like really, it was not something I'd, you know, gotten deeply into in my time there. Mm. And then I'd wanted to do a blog, but like at Time, I couldn't really because at Time you were bound by these very sort of strict You had to be uh, an official conflict. face. Yeah, so. you were an official face. You couldn't really have any side projects. Anything you did had to be approved. And so some snarky blog where I was going to be, you know, telling dirty jokes about art was obviously never going to fly. But once I left, it offered me the opportunity to do that. And at first I was like, you know, I was starting this work in Florida. I was doing some other magazine writing work. And I was like, you know, let me just try this. Let me try this blogging thing. I haven't done it. I had done some digital work at time. And so I just started blogging because it allowed me to kind of just cover things that perhaps I wasn't covering as part of my job. It also allowed me to just keep up on everything because I was constantly reading, because I was feeding the blog. It meant that I was up on what was happening. And then, you know, it was funny. I was going to, like, I'll do it for three or four months, and then that's it. And, you know, five years later, there I am, like, still doing the blog. And part of it was this thing of, after working at magazines and constantly having to channel this institutional voice, the blog was the first time where I could sort of write like myself pretty unfettered. I could just be myself. And there was a really addictive quality to that as a writer. And I feel to some degree... It was probably the best writing exercise I could have ever done. I mean, Time was a great writing exercise in the sense that I worked with great writers and great editors who really cared about language and the way things flowed and sounded and how words could be used to communicate and synthesize complex ideas. But the blog was where I could just, you know, be free with language, experiment, do weird things, like have fun. You're writing for Time, you're learning how to write features. Yeah. But you're not learning a voice. Yeah, you're writing for time. Yeah. You're writing for time, and you sound like time. Right. And it's, you know, serious with maybe some humor, but, you know, no dick jokes or anything like that. (laughs) You're like, I need to tell more dick jokes. I'm like, I need to tell more dick jokes. But I mean, without the dick jokes, it's it's not yours, you know. No, because it's like I mean, I'm always I'm also like this is art. We're not covering Baghdad. Like, come on, <laughs> it's like you go into some gallery and there's some giant. I remember. There, no, there's a one of your best ones. It was that temporary installation, which sucks that it was temporary. It was like that guy who he made that construction with no nails. He was like I think he's a Latino artist, and it was like a big environment. It had a ball pit. Oh, yeah, yeah, Ernesto Neto. Yeah, that was so great. But it was just, like, your actual write-up was just full of dick jokes. Yeah, I kept talking about balls. and. (laughs) I mean, it was this rather sensual experience. Plus, we may have, my friend and I may have done some 
heavy drinking and other things before we went into that, which probably ameliorated the experience. Um, <laughs> Ameliorate makes it seem like it was bad and you had to take the edge off. It looked like it was no. super fun. No, it was super fun. Yeah. It was super fun. So, yeah, I feel like the blog was like, that was my sketch pad. That yeah. was where I worked out ideas. And not just ideas about art, but ideas about how to write and how to communicate and how to synthesize ideas. So when you started getting like art news, like art specific mm-hmm. press, like art news, and then eventually the LA Times art, were they paying attention to the blog, or yeah. how, is that how they? Art news actually reached out to me through the blog, um, nice. and initially, how long had you been blogging at that point? Um, you know, I don't know, maybe a year. Okay, is mm, I, I forget. Um, uh, that was pretty quick. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty. I mean, it was funny because some other bloggers were like, well, that was fast. And I was like, well, I was also a work. I had the advantage of being a working journalist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I didn't identify myself at first on the blog, but then I slowly started. And, you know, once people heard, Mm -hmm. oh, she's worked at Time. So then they knew I knew how to report a story. They knew I knew what libel was. I mean, that's like a huge thing. (laughs) They knew I couldn't just like make stuff up. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, especially these art magazines, a lot of times they have to deal with people who aren't writers aren't journalists writing about art who aren't necessarily familiar with, like, the rules of journalism. So yeah. I think for... Sometimes say, that person art, is me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and own it, own it. So for art news, it was like, oh, she's worked for time, you know. Yeah, we can, we, yeah. We, can, we don't have to worry. I don't know anything about the art blogging era. Or I don't know if it is an era that's over now because of Twitter and shit, but, mm. or the scene. I'd say it's still going on, but I would probably had, it was probably a little stronger... I mean, it's, like, and it was weird because you would think you would just ambiently know if you were, like, did art all day for a living. But it seemed like, I don't know. Necessarily. How, how, how much of an art world did you feel like you were part of when you were writing it? Did it feel like a connected scene full of things where something would happen here and people would hear about it and there were ripples? Or was it just, like, we're all kind of doing it and we're looking to each other because we, out of courtesy and, mm. I mean, there was. Sometimes somebody would write about something and other people would react to it. Uh, that happened sometimes. Everyone also had kind of their own areas of interest. Mm. You know, Patty Johnson at Art F City was really into like digital art and certain emerging artists, and she would kind of focus on that. And Harag Vartanian, when he had his own blog, was like focusing on on also on a lot of emerging artists. He would do like studio visits, and and Sharon uh, at Two Coats of Paint would was just doing like straight up criticism. So everyone had their kind of niche and occasionally there would be these like intersections or reactions or some hot topic that would get everyone you know it was like I remember one year the Whitney Biennial like the wall text on it was just these like turgid pieces of crap that everyone (laughs) well I mean there was one year where it was especially bad it was I mean it was just egregiously bad especially when you think about the fact that this is a public institution that is supposed to cater to Mm. more than just the art world and it was these you know dense things about recontextualizing liminal space and hybridity and blah, and all the stuff that it's, it almost makes me not, I mean, I cover art and it makes me not want to cover it. Yeah. And and it started, like, someone critiqued it and then someone else followed up and someone else followed up and then just, like, before we knew it, there was, like, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about it and it was, like, this thing that had thing. kind of pinged back and forth on the blogs, like, ended up... Mm in a newspaper. So that, that did happen. That did happen. A, I, I do want to ask just like specifically about that before we, I forget. Okay. So art writing, like that kind of, uh, anything using the phrase liminal space, but mm-hmm. like 
That kind of like <laughs> crappy. Should be the name of my band. <laughs> <laughs> that could be name of your venue. Oh, yeah, the name of right. my venue. Liminal space. Undermining normative assumptions at liminal space. Exactly. Tonight. Interrogating hybridity. <laughs> well, like that kind of like press release writing oh. and like wall text writing, which makes me suicidal, has been a whipping boy of artists and yeah. then art bloggers and now like professional people who write about art for a living. Yeah. You know, like who have that's their only job. But it still exists. Yeah. And it's not as if like October or like other really academic journals are like powerful forces that control things. Like how, how why is it still there? Like why haven't you guys mm. killed it yet? I think, I mean, I think part of it honestly is it's used as a cover up for a lack of ideas. Yeah, but why do people let it, like why isn't it not transparently Somebody obvious likes it. now? Like no. why doesn't everyone just go, oh, we can't do that. Like why is it not just out of style? I, you point. know, I don't, uh, that's a good question. I wish I knew the answer because every week I write a date book where I list the shows to go see. And so every week I yeah, pour through all of them. the press releases that are sent to me. And it really, it makes me want to hurt people. <laughs> because, I mean, li- sometimes I literally have to call galleries and be like, okay, uh, I got your press release, but what is the work? And they're like, well, it's, you know, it interrogates, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just <laughs> like, no, no, no. Is it installation? Is it painting? Is it sculpture? Can we just start there? Yeah. Like, before you tell me that, you know, it questions the nature of memory, just tell me what the hell it is. Like, Oh, it's a pineapple. <laughs> it's a banana peel in a gallery. I was an intern at Art Forum. I had to, like, do that job. Yeah. I had to pick That's up what the, they the do. They, but yeah. at Art Forum, they try to make their stories more art-speaky. Yeah, I mean, I didn't write the stories. I just, yeah. like, but my job was to make that list, you know, yeah. of the openings, so I had to read the postcards, mm-hmm. you know, and I had to do fact-checking. So I'd be like, what, is it a pineapple? Yeah, is it a pineapple? I was just going to ask about being the tastemaker. How, how, how interested are you in, in being, like, you know, like the DJ at a party? They're like, everyone should know this song. Everyone should know this song. Do you get a lot of pride from that? Um, I would say I'm so not the tastemaker. I always consider my interests like really odd <laughs> and never in keeping with what other people are in tune with. I'm always the person that likes the product that's discontinued. <laughs> so, <Okay. laughs> so I never see myself as the tastemaker. When I am really passionate about something that I think people should see, I will try to write passionately about them to encourage to do so. But, you know, as I've learned, it's like it doesn't mean that people will necessarily see it or take it seriously. Like, you know, I remember going to see this Natalie Bookchin piece at Lace years ago that to this day remains one of the most powerful works of art I've ever seen. It's this video installation. I don't even know it. Now he's out in public. And it was this you entered this dark room that had these TVs staggered all over the place and they would come on intermittently. And what she had done is taken bits of dialogue off of uh, YouTube vlogs, all talking about issues of black men and race and how they're perceived and how they, how they should behave, you know, by black men, by white men, by young women, by everybody, like any vlogger who had an opinion about like what black men should or shouldn't be doing. And she cut it up and she put it into this like really hallucinatory installation that was kind of this amazing exploration of the space that black men are expected to occupy in our society and how contradictory it can be and how dangerous it can be. But it was also done in this like visually stimulating way that was this real experience because often like some of these video things are like, okay, I'm staring at a monitor. I could do this at home in the comfort 
of right, my yeah. couch. But this was a full immersive experience. And it was one of those pieces that I thought, given everything that has gone on in our society, like it just felt so important. And I wrote this like very impassioned review of it. And I've, I've written about it since. And, you know, has it ever been shown at an American museum? Like, no, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think that, yeah, you can try to point people to stuff that you think is great, but I, I would never assume the role of t- tastemaker because I just think that I, I don't know that I'm ever the one that makes the taste, <laughs> to put it. I mean, I, I had this thing, which is like, I feel like art writers have two jobs and one is important and one is interesting and mm-hmm. they're opposites. The important job that everyone wants you to do is mm-hmm. tell them what to look at. Mm-hmm. And that is not the interesting job. The interesting job is what you write about it or like what you think about it. Mm. And that is the part that is interesting as a writer and no one really pays attention but to But it's that. a little bit of, I mean, those two things overlap. You cannot write about someone without writing about them. Yeah, it's true. Exactly. I'm just saying that like what I see from critics is whenever you tell a critic that, that, you, that you, you're like, thank you for writing that. Someone, that is press. It will go yeah. in my little press thing. And then the, when they sell things, they will go, look, press. Yeah. They go, I didn't realize anyone cared. It's because... They're like, like, critics are like, we have no power at all. Like, it's unheard of that a critic would have power. The part of your job, which I think is interesting, is not the part that everyone else cares about. Like, the part where you write what you think that is an important piece is not the important part. The important part to everyone else, to capitalism and to Natalie, is that there's an article that says Natalie Bookchin in it, in her Google hits. You know what I mean? And all the passion description of it and how it works, which is the fun part, which is the intellectual part, which is the part that probably engages you, is not the important part to anyone else, or at least to the money. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, and totally. So, and sometimes you could do a middling critical assessment of something that goes, oh, okay, this is okay, but it kind of sucks here, and it's kind of... And the artist will still be super happy, and I'm always kind of like... <laughs> but you wrote about it. <laughs> yeah, it's like you wrote about it. <laughs> no, I mean, but it, it's true. Like I'm like, but did you read it? <laughs> I've never talked to any, any dealer that's like, the press was good or the press was bad, except in the sense of there was press or yeah, wasn't. Yeah, it got reviewed. Like, it's not like all press is good press when you're super fucking famous. Like, mm. if everybody descended on, like, Barbara Kruger and was like, she's lost it. This, yeah. But for everybody else, which is, like, now most artists. Yeah, it's like, most artists. Someone wrote it. Someone felt like they were obligated to write this bad review because they, like, this artist something. is in my face there's enough something. that I have to complain yeah. about them. Exactly. You know? So, you're at art. News. No. Well, okay, you're blogging. Is it like you get a freelance assignment yeah, from I was Art freelancing, News? Yeah, then, I was freelancing like, for Art News. I was freelancing for uh, WNYC, doing radio. I was doing some radio features. I was doing also some travel stuff. Like, I never completely stopped doing right. the the travel stuff. You can't really do art stuff without traveling, right? So you might as well, yeah. right? And for a while, I was even doing stuff for Lonely Planet. And it was this way of like, okay, I'm going to disappear to Peru for two months, you guys. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> like, there's just something really kind of amazing about doing that and just walking away from it. <laughs> Sounds good. So, like, yeah. Good work if you can exactly. get Exactly. Like, I'm going to the Costa Rican jungle and out. And then the kind of amazing thing, people are like, how can you just keep walking away from your job, like, you know, from art like that? And I'm just like, the thing is, I come back from the Costa Rican jungle and it's all still there. <laughs> it's all, <laughs> still, like, the same thing and same dramas and whatever. So, so from your point of view, what's the art world like? 
What's the art world? I mean, well, the art world is just this very broad term sure, but to describe. You live in the real world, right? Yeah. You go see movies. You probably know about as much about movies as everybody else in LA. You know, like you run into well, those I don't people. Know about that. But I mean, you know, you know a little bit, right? Yeah, a little you, bit. You watch yeah. TV, you read articles about other universes. Yeah. If you were like talking to another intelligent person who knew nothing about art, but you're mm-hmm. like, what's the art beat like? Yeah. What goes on in art? What would you say? What would I say? Um, what would I say? That's a good question. You know, there's there's two art worlds. There's the art industry, which is this machinery of fairs and press releases and auctions and prices and sold-out shows and services that sell art online. And that's one art world. It's a very prominent art world, and it gets a lot of coverage. You know, auction totals are a regular thing in, like, the New York Times. It's not the art world I'm interested in. And in fact, it's not even really the art world I cover. Like, I have a, a, a no art fair policy. Sure, but I mean, um, the Broad opens and you cover it. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, it's like there's certain things I can't. I mean, I have a job to <laughs> like adhere to. But I mean, I, I don't do art fairs. I don't do auctions. I don't do the stories that are like blah, 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 painting sold for X, Y, Z dollars. Because I just... You know, then the next painting comes out and sells for $10 more, and then that's the story, and then everyone forgets about it, and nobody cares about the painting. I can see how that would be a not interesting Yeah, it's tedious. It's the same story each time. So that's one art world, sort of the business of it, the global jet-settiness of it, the fairs. And I kind of choose to try to stay away from it as much as I can. And then for me, there's the other art world, which is the world of artists making stuff, whether it's for themselves or for a gallery show or for some crazy backyard garage show performance that they're going to do. And that, to me, I think is the most interesting world. That, Especially in a place like L.A., where historically the commercial aspect simply hasn't been as strong. You know, there mm. aren't as many galleries here that are in New York. Like, L.A. is not a place that you go meet your friends at galleries. You know, some... No, but Some. yeah. But it's not like New yeah. York where it's like, hey, are you doing the openings on Thursday? Yeah, because there's no like, place to do the openings. Yeah, here, here it's got to be much more conscientious. Like, are you going to that one opening in Culver City? Cause, right, yeah. It so it's the, the commercial aspect is diffused. Yeah, but you have to convince whoever you're writing for mm-hmm. that it's enough part of the industry on yeah. some level that it's worth writing about, yes. right? I mean, so you get to write about something in that overlap where it's like something that represents the world of artists as you want to look at it or you're interested in, but it's enough part of the commercial world that you can't write, nobody writes about somebody when they're not having a show unless they're super fucking famous. You know, like you wait for them to have a show or they're an event, so. Uh, Usually my definition is something for the public to see. And so whether that's a one-time performance in your backyard or whether that's uh, your solo museum show, that's fine. Like, I don't really distinguish that much between the two. <laughs> but yeah, you want the public to be able to interact with it. Uh, like, I'm not going to be writing stories, and especially given so much happens in L.A. and there's not a lot of art media here. I feel like if I'm going to be covering people, I want to cover people that somebody who reads that story can then turn around and go see the work. So did you go from, like, doing a bunch of freelance, including art news, 
then you got your job at the LA Times? Is that what happened? Or was I was doing freelance. I, I was living in New York, and then I moved here in 2012 because I was ready to come back to LA. I'd been ready for a long time <laughs> to come back to LA. And I was freelancing here, and the LA Times called me up, and they were looking for an arts reporter, and through various connections, they'd heard about my work, and... I ended up, and it just ended up being a good deal because it was like, for the longest time, I'd been a freelancer for eight years, and I was like, I can't ever go back to work yeah. at a company again. This is crazy. You know, I can't have a boss. But it was like the right combination of factors happened. First, they pretty much let me cover what I want. Obviously, sometimes I got to do stuff they want. Like, that's the way any job right. works. But I cover a lot of the stories that I end up writing about are things I generate myself. So there was that. We had a whole discussion about how much voice I'd be able to put into it because one of the things I wanted to do was like, okay, if I'm going to blog for you guys and I have to give up my blog, yeah, uh, I want to be able to write the way I want to write. And they were like, no, 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 we want you for your voice. So I was like, okay, perfect. And then the other match, and I'm very much about quality, I'm less concerned about status than quality of life, is the editor I work for, Loria Choa, is just this really smart, funny editor who understands my sensibility and I think what I bring to the table. So she's not trying to make me into, hey, you should be covering fairs, you know, because <laughs> she knows that that's not what I do or what I'm good at or what I find interesting. She knows that I sometimes like to tackle like a difficult, slippery idea. And she respects that. And she's a really good editor. And so this sort of confluence of factors came together. And then I was like, okay, well, the LA Times... Why not? You know, I had been kind of on this freelance plan. I was like, I'll never go work for the man. Right. <laughs> I mean, now the LA Times, you have an exclusivity thing with them, right? Yeah, I'm staff. They pretty much own every thought that comes out of my head. In fact, so, all of this I'm saying right now, they probably own. <laughs> uh, no, they own all your dick jokes. <laughs> they don't own my dick jokes. They won't let me publish those. <laughs> so we actually had to talk about that because you were like, send me an image. And you were like, remember, it's the LA Times. So yes. you I was like, oh, yeah. I'm like, I know. Family I like, paper. There are two pictures left that I can send. Exactly. Um, but, I know. I have to send sometimes a gallery. I'll be like, can you send me some images from this artist show? And I'll get like penises, boobs, sex. I'm like, you guys. <laughs> I need something I can run in a quote-unquote family paper. Yeah, so you got like an aggregator thing where you're like, here are the things that are happening. Yeah, and once then, a week. And you, use, and you do that. But I mean, what do you get to write in that? Is it like longer features or is like... I do features, I do profiles, I do Q&As, and then occasionally I just do weird stuff that strikes my fancy. I mean, part of the beauty of being... Because I'm part of this digital first, so the idea with the LA Times is that I focus on online. Like, my preoccupation as a journalist is just to publish online. And then if the print paper wants it, then they pick it up and they deal with it. I don't really deal with that that much. And so what's nice about it is occasionally I can do things that are, like, kind of insane and experimental, but nobody cares. Because, for example? For example, when all of the Jeff Koons shows were happening in New York, it was like everyone was talking about it. But I'm here. I hadn't seen the show. Like, there was really nothing for me to say about it. But I kept reading all of the reviews, and the reviews are completely insane because they're describing Jeff Koons' work. So all of these writers are kind of going to town with the adjectives and, right. you know, the <laughs> descriptions of his inkjet sex paintings and so on and so forth. And so I did a cut-up poem where I took excerpts of all of the reviews of the Jeff Koons shows and turned it into one long 
cut up poem and then each line of the poem linked to the original source. I saw that. That it was wow. from. <laughs> Do you feel like... Like on The Simpsons, at some point they were like, it's a cartoon. Mm-hmm. So even though it's a sitcom, we can do whatever we want. Yeah. Does the fact that it's online and not in the printed paper yeah. make the LA Times go, we can do whatever we want? Cart- I mean, it's, <laughs> it's definitely freeing because you don't have the real estate thing that you right. have to deal You're with. Not like, okay, somebody it's got to fit in six inches. You know, they talk in inches there. Right. It's all really dirty. <laughs> can you give me 12 inches? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> can I? Oh, wow. <laughs> I still don't know. They have to translate it to word count for me because I still you don't you don't I, think in print. No, since I'm not writing for the paper on a daily basis, right. I don't I don't think in inches. How many? At people, least not when it comes to writing. <laughs> How many people are writing about art over there? Like uh, it's total. me, Christopher Knight, who reviews. We have a number of freelance reviewers like Sharon Mazota and Leah Ullman and David Pagel, and then David Ng, Jessica Gelt, and Deborah Vankin are sort of arts reporters. So they cover visual art news as much as, you know, theater and uh, film and other... They're at large. Yeah, music, like classical music. like So they, they cover a range of things. But, you know, being the LA Times, it could also be like, okay, you, Oscars, right, yeah. <laughs> get back. So it's like my colleague David was sent backstage at the Oscars. Like he covers theater and... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I guess the Oscars is a theater. You know how to identify a stage and when you're behind it, right? (laughs) All right. Exactly. Go. (laughs) I actually did social media for the LA Times for the Oscars, which was kind of hilarious. So did you just like watch them and then tweet? Yeah. And I was Facebooking. I would, my job was to Facebook, so. So you were the, it would say LA Times and you were the Facebook. Yeah, I was the LA Times. If you follow LA Times on Facebook, I was Facebooking for the Oscars. You know, they gave us free food. There was no booze, however, which I was a little disappointed by. But The Times or the Oscars? The Times, because I was at the office. I wasn't at the office. So they gave you free food to watch the Oscars. They gave us free food to watch the Oscars. So it was a lot like just going to an Oscar party, it only was, you got no, paid. Uh, well, no one was getting drunk, because if I'm going to go to the Oscar party... Like, well, you're telling us you weren't getting drunk, but I don't believe you. No, I swear to God. I no longer see you as I'm, a reliable narrator. I've been... I've been... <laughs> I, you know, at Time Magazine, those people could drink. They I could, they, and they drank while they were working, constant. Like especially the closing. My thing about Time and Newsweek is, I imagine no person on earth thinks like those pieces are written. No, a they are Computer as if a very them. stupid, <laughs> a very stupid person who is extraordinarily centrist. Were suddenly had an education <laughs> that would make it impossible for them to think that way, but yet we're still thought that way. Okay, I'm just trying to follow this. <laughs> so, like, you take a dumb person who just kind of believes what you tell them, uh-huh. and they're too dumb to write. They're literally too dumb to write or report a story. But then you pump them through some sort of magic juice that mm-hmm. makes them able to write or report a story. Mm-hmm. And so now they're smart enough to, like, write paragraphs and, well, and copy edit again. themselves. Mm-hmm. That level of education would necessarily make it impossible for them to think those things anymore. Like, I'm excited the Pope has come to town, but they still write those things. I feel like it's an imaginary person at that point that is entirely notional from every direction. (laughs) I think you've kind of, it's gotten really conceptual here, so I'm kind of like... (laughs) You don't have to say anything bad about Times or Newsweek. No, no, no. It was weird in a lot of ways. It was this very sort of like avuncular 
setting. There must have been like a scrim of irony. Like no one was writing in their voice in a certain sense. But were the even, critics were. Sure, uh, but like George but yeah. Will. But fuck yeah, him. But yeah, I mean, exactly. like exactly. It was this weird writing by committee, and it doesn't really happen anymore. But when I was there, it still did. You had a thing where a reporter would write a file who would then send it to the writer, and then the writer would write it up, and then it would go through two levels of editing, plus like three levels of copy editing, and perhaps an additional level of editing in case somebody was confused. So it was this writing by committee. But it also just seems like nobody thinks the way the Times as an aggregate talks to people. No. But there are a few people at the top who are essentially curators who are like, yeah. I've decided this is important. Yeah. Other than that, I just want to get it out to the rubes. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing about working about time is that, you know, being a national magazine, it, part of the thing was, can Grandma and Peoria understand right. the story? Like, you were writing to the broadest audience possible, which is really difficult, especially to do smartly, because you don't want to dumb it down, but you still want Grandma and Peoria, who doesn't follow this, to be able to pick it up and understand it. I have to say, national writing being in the United States is really tricky. You're just writing to too damn big of a place. Mm. I mean, we're all grandma on some subjects. Yeah, and so you have to kind of bland it down, and it gets kind of pummeled into this weird shape that, yeah, doesn't resemble anything (laughs) familiar. At the same time, it is this kind of terrific lesson as a writer in terms of learning how to translate those concepts into... It sounds kind of like foundation. It was great. It was a great foundation. It was an absolutely, absolutely great foundation. I'm so glad I had it. But yeah, to write that way all the time, like I don't, probably couldn't do it. Right. So... But there was a lot more drinking there, so as a result... But I mean, like, all those people, <laughs> they're like, uh, like, yeah. like, they're much healthier at the L.A. Times. You know, they have to, like, I don't know, they have to go work out. Well, they also live know, in L.A., people. yeah. Yeah, it's there, it was, like, the Friday clothes, and it was, like, these bottles of wine would just come out, and <laughs> people would be getting sloshed. And But I mean, also, like, for, like, those political reporters, like, drinking is part of the job. Like, yeah. literally, you have to take people out for drinks. Yeah. And survive them in order to get stuff, right? I mean, that's... I wanted to talk about two specific... Now you're there. You're at the LA Times. We're done with your life. We're done. My life is is over. over. My life is pretty much over. They pretty much... um, Yeah, they own me. Okay. Aside from prices are lower or whatever, there's less art world in New York than LA. Mm -hmm. What's the LA art world like if you were going to try to describe that to the New York If I were to describe it to the New York Art Press. I think what makes the L.A. art world interesting is what's always made it interesting is that, you know, they always say this is a place to make art, not to sell it. That's what I say. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you probably are. (laughs) Just got off a show in New York. I'm like, yeah, that's like live in L.A. (laughs) Exactly. Show in New York. York. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And so... Some of the most interesting stuff you see is, again, the stuff that people are doing in their garages and backyards and little weird storefront spaces. I mean, I remember a while back I wrote about this artist who, there's a place in Santa Monica called Five Car Garage, which is essentially some woman's garage and she runs it kind of as a gallery and they do shows sometimes. And there was an artist who'd written this 15-minute musical about working in this lab and falling in love with a biomass. And when, <laughs> when I heard this description, I was like, I have to see this. Right. Like, I have to see a 15-minute musical about a woman who falls in love. And she created this, like, giant, like, biomass 
sculpture that kind of like wriggled around while she sang in this like hazmat suit and we all sat like in folding chairs. So what you're saying is the legal marijuana is a really (laughs) important part of this. It's really why I'm here. (laughs) Let's yeah, let's just lay that right out. (laughs) I think like there's a combination of like stifled would-be Hollywood creativity. Like Mm -hmm. all these people who are like in special effects, they wanted to be an actor, they wanted to be a writer, they wanted to do whatever, or they want to do their dream, and then they come to Hollywood and then they're not doing it, and so they make some crazy art. Mm-hmm. Plus legal marijuana. Mm. Plus... It's a good combo. Plus multiculturalism in general. Yeah. makes LA has like lots of rando creativity yeah. that a and lot of times this, isn't even called art. And then the sprawling nature of it, the fact that yeah, things there get hidden is away. space, the fact that things can happen in people's backyards and garages and the fact and that they have backyards and, and garages not, and not everybody knows like it's not this centralized thing like new york where in new york if that musical with the biomass had happened there would probably be like 12 bloggers and a tweeter all sitting in the audience whereas in la you're kind of with you know the artist's family 10 interested people and me you know right. it really you do feel like not everything is this media experience. Not everything is being created for the media because there's not that much art media right. here. Like, if you're an artist here and you're creating pieces for the art media, boy, you're really... Like, like it's you're like 5% of the art media in L.A. <laughs> exactly. And L.A. is the second biggest city in, in exactly. the U.S. Exactly, there's I mean, not that much. I like, mean, you know, you have the, the West Coast correspondence of the big art publications as well as places like The Guardian and The New York Times. But there's not a million art bloggers. Yeah. Like there is in New York. I mean, York. it's interesting. This is like art is a specialized enough field, like the yeah. fine arts, that each language group or each country can produce exactly one city where you make it as like it's a normal thing to do. Exactly. Like and then there are others, even if they have a big second city, it's like yeah. that's not. Like Chicago like, you can have a show in Chicago. I've had shows in Chicago, in SF, in uh-huh. LA. But, like, New York is, like... You want to sell, you like go to New York. Way over. Which is weird, because you, like... Most collectors can Google, I assume. But it's like they go to New York to buy shit. Or they go to, you know, yeah. a fair. But I think Los Angeles, part of the art scene here, is you do have this burgeoning gallery scene. And you do have these galleries that have been around for a while. I I've tended to find the galleries... Somewhat less interesting than, say, the alternative. You know, the sort of more Kunst Hall spaces like Lace, where I saw the Natalie Bookchin piece. Right. Uh, you know, I think of places like Human Resources, where I've seen some, like, perfectly bizarre stuff. I saw this—I forget the name of the artist. He did, like, this series of ceramic sculptures all set on these low tables, and you would go in, and he brought in these, like, boxes of citrus, and you would use the sculptures to squeeze the citrus and then drink it. I mean, it was the weirdest. It was, like, this completely bizarre, kind of wonderful experience because the sculptures were kind of these sexy uh, things that looked like undersea organisms but could also just be, like, pervy abstractions of penises and stuff. And so you'd sit on this little cushion on top of a log with this crate of citrus and these ceramic sculptures. And it was this show that lasted, I think, a week. And then it went away. And so I feel like L.A. is really good at, you know, you find these kind of obsessive, interesting artists who are doing stuff just because 
they yeah. have no choice but to do it. Like, yeah. they're not doing it. So I don't think the guy with the citrus installation was like, oh my God, I'm really going to sell a bunch of these pieces from human resources right. in I my mean, show. There's, there's stuff like that everywhere and including in New York, mm-hmm. but there's not necessarily people who are going to write about it. Yeah, Here it's a little bit more hidden, but I also think in New York, the commercial aspect always hangs over it. I know a bunch of people who like make bad taste art, like juxtapose kind of. It seems like that scene is more integrated with the regular art world in L.A., or at least they have the same prices in L.A., (laughs) because L.A. has almost made a choice to not push away the weird rando creativity as much as New York has exactly. because New York all like the reason that the New York art world is like the prices are good and it's such a like a, a scene that's like so integrated is also because it is tried to push itself away from every other kind of creativity that might happen in New York. It's tried to set it off itself off as like a very specialized field where, yeah. you know, if this guy makes a couch with pattern on it, it's different than a guy who makes couches. Right. And here LA is to some degree, embracing that that happens, le- like that they don't want to go in that route. Yeah. The same thing kind of happens in Chicago. I'm slightly but- offended. New York's got weirdos. Come on now. Oh, it's not that New York doesn't have weirdos <laughs> at all, because I've been to some perfectly weird shows in New York. You know, I've been in basements seeing really bizarre performances. All right, all right, good. But I think that the specter of the market hangs over the art scene in New York simply one because of the cost of living two because space is at a premium and three because the market is there it's omnipresent it's unavoidable well I mean you also have like are you a professional artist or are you not yeah do you, you know have I mean? gallery representation and then again the social aspect of art is built around commercial galleries in New York it's like oh are you hitting Chelsea on Thursday are you doing the Lower East Side you know, are you are you going to Bushwick Open Studios? Like all of that stuff, I think it's built somewhat around that. LA is deliriously uncouth. Yeah. You know, nobody's sitting there going on about their connoisseurship of contemporary art, except for some blowhards who went to Cal Arts. But you know, like, <laughs> you go to Cal Arts, Justin? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I should have said Yale. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Um, Okay, so we just talked about a little bit about bullshit, about art world bullshit. There's the bullshit, and then there's the, maybe it's not bullshit, but like, the conversation around art. Mm. The impression that I get is that since about 1990, nothing has at all changed in the conversation about art, except now we have the word social practice, and now we have Banksy. But other than that, everything else in the conversation about art is, oh, we have fairs now. But, like, basically, those subjects have emerged. But in terms of, like, a writer sits down and writes a critical piece and tries to, to do criticism and tries to participate intellectually in, like, going back and forth about art. No one, like, reads it, responds to it, writes something back, and then we have a, a vigorous conversation or debate oh, or vig- dialogue. Oh, vigorous dialogue. A, a dialogue. That is an illusion of something that should be happening, but I have the impression it doesn't actually happen. But I don't know if I'm just wrong or not paying attention. Um, is there a dialogue? I think it happens. It's rare. I think it has something to do with the way media has fragmented. I mean, when Clement Greenberg was going on about the abstract expressionists in art news, it was like... How many American art magazines were there? Right. Not that many. So he was in this extraordinarily powerful position to advocate for a certain type of art and argue for it with other people and engage in this dialogue. And I feel like with the fragmentation of media, what's happened is 
you have a lot of writers catering to niche audiences, first of all. And then sometimes, I guess that debate happens not so much, you know, it used to be somebody ran a, a review and then another person or a piece of criticism or a think piece and then another person would write a letter to the editor or publish a counter essay. Yeah, I think there's less of that. And I think some of it is with the speed at which the media works right now. It's, I mean, as somebody who publishes almost daily or daily on most weeks, it's really hard to sometimes have the time to compose something profound and well thought out in response to something else. And then it's that feeling of, oh, the news cycle has moved on. Yeah. That we're not talking about social practice today. We're now talking about the Modigliani auction record. I mean, it seems like the the big pieces are, there'll be a big show of a very well-established artist. Mm -hmm. And then people will have to write a piece about them. Mm -hmm. And then you have a conversation that's very local to that artist who's already been well-established and is part of something that everyone decided was art 20 years ago. And so it doesn't change anything very much because it's about that. I don't even remember like the the recent biennials like making everybody decide all of art is going this way or that way lately. Well, I mean, I think that's part of the bigger issue of art right now. There's so much of it and there's so many threads that is there one sort of dominant ideology or one current. It's really hard to identify. I mean, I do think what has come up is certainly the internet and artists playing with the conventions of the internet and subverting it and but that's like um, it's a subject that's kind of inevitable because artists are doing it but yeah. i mean there isn't anyone saying a thing about it right like nobody's saying like internet art is like this it means this right i think or some writing has it. been done interestingly i'd probably say most of the writing on that has been coming out of like some blogs in new york okay. um there was one book, I, the name of the author escapes me, like Thames and Hudson published one book on internet art that is actually the must read on it. There was a follow-up on internet art. I mean, I feel like it gets discussed, but I feel like no one thing is dominant in the discourse around art. The discussion about art is probably the same as the discussion is about politics. It just moves from one story to the next, to the next, to the next. Mm. With the news cycle, maybe because I work for a mainstream media organization, it feels that way. Yeah. I guess I feel like something fundamental has changed about the way critics interact with artists. Like, it seems more individual and atomized Mm. and less like people are building theses and then counter theses and then evaluating the art based on these theses, which is in many ways very nice. Yeah. You know, but on the other hand, it's like... you're not being put into a box. We do have this... A lot of art seems like in order for it to have a meaning or a content, it mm-hmm. depends on the idea of there being a dialogue mm-hmm. and there is no dialogue. Yeah. And so it's like the art is just saying like, have you ever thought about the way minimalism is like kind of gendered? And it's like, <laughs> no one cares. And he, like, there's no dialogue. Like, who are you talking to? You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but you hate minimalism. Uh. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, the art is making a point to an audience which isn't going to discuss it. Part of it is that art is, especially with conceptual art, it's so inside of itself. And if you're not in the art world and you walk into some show that's all conceptual <laughs> art, I mean, you're talking about exhibitions in which there's nothing to see, really. It's these 
exercises in reference to references. So much of it has gotten so meta that... At one point, though, it was at least... I mean, I almost wonder... It was meta to an audience. And now it just seems like it's meta to no... You know what I mean? Like... It's almost like the world is more meta than the conceptual art. Yeah. Any, you know I have, I have I mean? to point like, out, Zach, that at some point we have to find somebody that's pro-conceptual art because everybody we get, we just trash talk conceptual art <laughs> so much. We have to carefully define it and then trash it. Well, because it gets yeah. exhausting, you yeah. know, some of it. Well, especially, I mean, I have to tell you, every once in, when I go into a show that has, like, a lot of painting and sculpture and things to look at, I get really excited. Like, I'm relieved. Mm. <laughs> you know, I'm just yeah. relieved. <laughs> because it's some well, of it. Well, you say your you expectations know, have been subverted. <laughs> it's just like, oh, I could just look at this painting. I don't have to read some wall text about how the sock is really just this evidence of this action that, you know, is referencing this thing that Joseph Boys did in like Germany in 1970, whatever. And so. <laughs> So I think that I mean art may be responsible for part of that, but they keep making it. They keep well because they keep going to school. There's too much damn school. <laughs> <laughs> they keep they the get these masters, now. and then they have to do something with that hundred thousand dollars they spent on all that knowledge. So then they keep recycling it. But there's no knowledge. Like they literally impart no knowledge to you. They just tell you how to fight with people about your really? art. Art school is like. All that stuff you think you learn, they, they, that people think we learn, uh-huh. we don't learn. The, like, no two people get out of art school knowing the same things. Yeah. Like, in other words, like, it's not like law school where it's like, oh, habeas corpus. That's a, yeah. I know what that is. Like, <laughs> yeah. you get two people out of they might have both learned something, but they were not, they didn't learn the same I thing. think that the sense I get with art school is that it's not so much about learning anything. It's really just about rethinking what you're going to do. I mean, it's about hanging out with other artists, yeah. like paying to hang out with other artists, paying which is often a good yeah. idea. Like, it works for some yeah. people. But, yeah, people don't But there is out. a lot of recycling of ideas, and so, I don't know, we're in this moment where you see this, like, recycling of a lot of 70s stuff, and, uh, yeah, and that gets just a little exhausting, you know, sort of that abstraction of the abstraction of the abstraction of the concept of... I call it, it's, it, it is narrative art in a way in the sense that there's a narrative about it. It's just never in the art. It's like almost an <laughs> illustration of an art history text. Yes. Like yes. art history is the story and this is a picture which illustrates that that happened. You know? Yeah. And so I don't want to have any debates about them really. <laughs> I don't want to dialogue about them. <laughs> it's exhausting. But do you even want to talk about it to trash it? Or do you just want to go, I'm exhausted with that and I'm going to not blog about it? Because... Some critical minds, they're like, okay, I disagree with that, but I want to have a really good. Yeah, I want to have a really good I mean, argument. I don't and I want not to cover conceptual art. Sure, no, you cover I, all. I do. Stuff. I do cover all kinds of stuff, and sometimes I will specifically cover art that maybe I don't find personally appetizing, but just as a way of learning more about it and right. trying to understand it. I remember having a whole Matthew Barney discussion with another blogger in New York, and she's like, "Well, you know, some." sculpture blah 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 and I was like okay convince me like sit here and lay out an argument for why some of this is interesting you know I'm like Mulder I want to believe yeah (laughs) a lot of times like people who are art enthusiasts Mm -hmm. which I think you're thoroughly within that category right Mm -hmm. you're yeah I would not describe myself as a critic right so you're an art enthusiast Mm -hmm. they're like is this better than nothing and they're like yeah it's better than nothing or maybe like maybe 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 this is better than like a bad sandwich. But it's better than nothing. Yeah, there's like a 
there's golf tees all over this sidewalk. Yeah. You know, and it's better than nothing. <laughs> and I feel like artists are like, is this better than what I could have done with 30 by 40 inches of wall space? Like, they're like judging and they're meaner because they are not judging against nothing. They're judging against like some imaginary, like greatest hits, you know? Yeah. And so there is like an enthusiasm in your writing for stuff happening which yeah. is sometimes very cool because it's like oh yeah that is that is cooler than nothing and it's <laughs> that's actually kind of you know that's neat if you come from it like a critical like the people that you would link to and talk about and the discussions that you link to are often like people who don't agree with each other it seems like you have an attitude but you don't have like a heavy partisanship Mm-mm. having not studied art or art like i know nothing about art theory and something I'm completely okay with because <laughs> I feel like given the audience I write for, yeah, it, it wouldn't help. It, it wouldn't right. really help and it would probably just make me bitter and angry. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not an artist and I'm not a critic and I'm not, you know, I'm not doing the Greenberg thing where I'm espousing like some, you know, defining a movement and sort of pitting one group of artists against another. I don't feel like I really have a horse in the race. I feel like the anthropologist that's just there to record the shit show for humanity. Like, it's just, that's really what I'm there to do. <laughs> wow. I mean, is that completely wrong? Does that no. sound terrible? And <laughs> There's, like, there's an artist in, like, that Antonioni movie, like, Painter's Painting, who's mm-hmm. like, I'm a bird, I'm not an ornithologist. Yeah. But it's okay to be the ornithologist, too. Yeah. My area of interest is always, like, how does this work tie into something in the real world? Like, that's always my, how does it reflect or analyze or, you know, to use an art speak word, interrogate. Yeah. Stuff that is happening either in the world or in an artist's mind or in the landscape or... I wouldn't want to sell you short as, like, a person thinking while they're writing because, like, the piece... That artist, I can't remember who it was. He's like a white male artist, but he hired like a black actress yes. to represent him. Joe Scanlon. The piece that you wrote about that was really good. Yeah. Like it was like. I put a lot of work into that piece. That's one of the, the pieces I'm proudest of. The Donnell Wolford scandal at your, the Whitney Biennial. To your mind, what were you doing? What kind of writing were you doing when you wrote that? Well, what I wanted to do was, honestly, it was simple reporting because I felt like when the Donna Wolford controversy broke out over that Whitney Biennial, there was so much written about it, about, you know, does the a white artist have a right to do this kind of work? Is it appropriation? Is the Whitney promoting a white artist at the expense of a black artist? Should it count as one of the... You know, they were having all of these, like, debates about it. In the meantime, I felt like I was reading next to nothing about what the origins of the piece were or what the motivations of the piece were, except for one story that was written by Andrew Russith, who's now at Art News. None of them interviewed or spoke with the African-American women who portrayed these characters in the piece. Right. And so I think to have these very strongly opinionated pieces about what this means and what it doesn't and should he be allowed and should he not be allowed and, you know, artistic license and yada, yada, yada without speaking to, like, at least one of the major players. Like, everyone was interviewing the white artist, but then I felt like no one was speaking to the woman that was at the heart. Yeah, because she had essentially signed off on it. Yeah, and so I was was like, what would make... So my question was, why would she do it? 
She, what uh, was interesting? In case anybody is like doesn't know this thing at all, like can lay out yeah. what it is. What? So it was more than one black actress, right? Mm-hmm. Had portrayed an imaginary artist named Donnell Wolford. You can explain it. Yeah, it was. It was. It the, the artist Joe Scanlon came up with this imaginary black artist named Donnell Wolford. That who was, had paintings, like who real had paintings, paintings, and who 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 did other stuff, and who was portrayed on different occasions by one of two black actresses. And the thing is, when the work was accepted into the Whitney Biennial, it wasn't listed as Joe Scanlon's work; it was listed as Donnell Wolford. And that's where things got really hairy. Because and you it's interviewed like, the two women. Who I interviewed were, who, one of the women. One, one of the women didn't who had really, been acting, who had been doing yeah. the, the. One of the women didn't want to talk to me, but, but the she other would actually one did. Like, she would like go to schools and stuff, right, and do like slide talks, right? Like, no, no. What did she do? Then? No, she did. I mean, what she would do is she would show up these openings, okay. like in the character of Donnell Wolford, that she had a lot of say over how she was portrayed. She right. said, "I portrayed Don Donnell very differently from." How I, you know, I portrayed her as this kind of uncomfortable person, you know, in a way that was challenging to her. She's somebody who's done like a lot of theater. She's done a lot of really interesting and important theater. And so to her, it was this challenge. And she said that when Joe had initially approached her with it, she was like, oh, I don't want anything to do, you know, with your like post-colonial bullshit. Right. But then she had a conversation with him and was kind of (laughs) intrigued by this idea of creating this character that is completely outside of yourself. And that she, to some degree, had a role in creating because it wasn't like Joe handed her a script and said, "Okay, here's your character." Right, because you, and you can't read a script in an art opening anyway. No, it was like they together they kind of conceived who this person was, and the piece in many ways gets it like, you know, discomfort there is with race in the art world because you know obviously African American artists are still not very well represented. So when Donnell Wolford turns up at a Whitney Biennial, what does that mean? Right. You know, it's like she's not really a black artist. She's the creation. She's the fictional creation of a white artist. Right. So I was really interested in understanding a what motivated the piece and b what motivated. You know, Jen Kidman, one of the the actresses who who, who did the role to do the role. Like, what did she see in it? Because she wasn't, this is an uh, an actor who's done, like, really important theater. Mm. So it's not like we're talking about somebody who fell off the turnip truck. She didn't, like, like need the money. She didn't need thing. the money. She didn't need the attention. She did, you know, she's doing plenty of other stuff. She's also the kind of person that all the people writing the think pieces are supposed to be protecting. Exactly. Like, and she's so, that, and, and yet, that was what I thought was, like, yeah, so, Yeah, and know. so I was really interested in speaking to her. And so that was really the motivation behind that piece. And and she actually, I was very suspicious of the piece when I first heard about it. And, you know, she helped change my mind on it. I mean, I still don't love aspects of it, but she made me see it differently. And what she made me see is she's like, you know, everyone says that Joe Scanlon would have never gotten to the Whitney Biennial unless he'd had this fictional black actor actress this fictional black character and he and she said the fact is my fictional black character couldn't have gotten into the Whitney Biennial without Joe Scanlon right so it's this kind of this this link this power dynamic that I think they both recognized and that they were playing with and that they were poking a stick at in ways that was kind of dangerous and interesting and so I just think like what what I wanted wanna, to do uh, with that piece was take a step back and say, okay, I know everyone's having all of these like very visceral reactions about what this piece means about like art and race in America, but like let's sit down and think about what motivates it and why the people who are doing it are doing it. Yeah, I mean, I feel like 
you don't have to have a judgment in order to see the value of what you mm-hmm. did in that. Are there any other ones where you're like, I worked really hard on that. I like that one. That there was. A, there's been several. I did a piece. I did a piece on this artist who held a gorilla. Ser- Again, you know, artists who aren't doing anything with galleries or as part of the commercial infrastructure. He did a piece. Uh, it was about this five thousand year old tree that had been chopped down in the in Nevada in a national park in Nevada in the nineteen sixties. And at the time it was chopped down, it was thought to be the oldest living thing on Earth. And it was chopped down so that some scientists could study its rings. Right. He created this gorilla remembrance ceremony for this tree at the national park that a bunch of artists went to. I didn't go to, which is something I regret to this day. But I was just starting at the LA Times and I was... I like couldn't really ask for three or four days off to go to this performance right. at a national park in Nevada. Yeah. <laughs> and he created this really interesting piece, you know. How'd you find out about it? He had approached me with it and oh. he so said he I'm like, doing this piece. Just told he you because he, he knew about your it. Job? He told me, well, he'd invited me to go. Okay. Not necessarily to cover it, but he just he's like I think you would like this. And he was totally right. Yeah. And it's funny Jeff and I have ended up becoming friends. He's like I think you would like this. What he was interested in doing was resurrecting the memory of the tree. So not necessarily the tree itself, but the memories of the tree. And, you know, memory is this really kind of fungible thing. And uh, so (laughs) it exists in these liminal states. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. (laughs) And he created this. And then without the permission of the National Park, like he read the National Park rule book to figure out what he could get away with inside a National Park without permits and essentially created the ceremony that involved like a headset where you could listen to these like audio stories about the tree that he had gathered. Then he had convinced a local radio station in Ely, Nevada to play tree themed songs for the hour that people would be driving from Ely to the national park. So he would tell people like, Hey, tune to whatever. And there would be this like whole radio show devoted to like songs about memory and trees. The only song I can think of is that, it's like Morbid Angel, like the old oak hanging tree. It's like <laughs> the only song about a tree. Strange Fruit. And then yeah, strange and fruit. that one death. There's actually a, really, a Rush song that's all about trees battling each other. And it's that's so Rush. <laughs> yeah. And then you got to the mountain and he handed out these headsets with this audio thing he'd created. And then he'd staged this stand by the side of the, this is like the middle of nowhere in Nevada the stand by the side of the road selling snow globes of the tree so you're like driving on this road where like one car passes every hour and there's this stand that he and so to me it was just this really interesting story of what an artist does when they're really interested in a subject passionate about it like they <laughs> maybe <laughs> and so I wrote a story on that that I was pretty happy with I wanted to ask about when you are dealing with stuff that's like ephemeral, mm-hmm. but then your other thing is there's something for the public to see. Yeah. Like, I think actually a lot of the most interesting stuff is like these ephemeral things. And it's not the question isn't are they art, mm-hmm. but are they something? Like when they disappear, it's almost like someone threw a really good party and if you were there, it was yeah. good. And if yeah. you weren't, nah. is there something tragic about those things that are going to be there and then they're gone? Like, well, but I mean, that's the nature of theater and dance and performance. But like, you can record it, and then but in it's some cases, never you get going close. to be the performance of being no. in that room where things are happening, and you can hear people's breath and yeah. 
yeah, sometimes you just have to be there. It's like going to see a rock band. You can listen to their CD all you want, but when you go see them live, it's just a very different experience. So I'm I'm okay with it. Like sometimes we just need to be there. It's, you know, be present, be here now. But it's all like, yoga. You're yoga. always gonna find the, these things. It's like part of your job, right? Yeah. So you're going around like going like the three day, the two day, the four hour. Like this guy had a country on a like on a median strip for like four seconds. Yeah. <laughs> but to some degree, like those things might as well not have happened for a lot of your readers. Mm. So. Unless you're professionally searching them out, they kind of don't exist. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, like, how do we participate with them, evaluate them? Like, do you have to just get on everyone's mailing list? Like, do you, does everybody essentially have to become, like, LA Times art blogger so that they will get all the— I mean, yeah. how do you imagine that? Because that, that's a frustrating relationship for me. For example, like, Spiral Jetty is, like, most people will never see it. Yeah. It is a picture in our history text. Yes. And so I almost can't evaluate it. I almost don't even know if I want to decide whether it's good art or bad art because it's like it's, it's just a picture. It's it, unseeable. It, yeah, in a, way. in a certain sense, or it's seeable plus all this pain in the ass, which is getting in there. Ninety percent of the time, less interesting than the piece, any piece will be interesting. It's it's like I go to Rome and I see a piece. I do a bunch of fun things on the way, and then I yeah, see, but I see then a sometimes Saint Saint being on that it. isolated road with nothing but your thoughts is kind of part of the piece definitely but i mean do you do you think about that at all like that i mean line I, d- between- I, d- I try to keep a balance of stories obviously i don't want to run five stories in a week that are about you know bizarre ephemeral actions happening in <laughs> backyards and traffic medians <laughs> ultimately how i see my job is i'm a storyteller what i do is tell stories and sometimes things are simply a good story And I think that a lot of reading that people do, especially in, say, a newspaper like the LA Times, and I think a lot of reading in general, it's it's aspirational. People read book reviews in the New York Times, book reviews of books they'll never read because they might want to know about it, but they don't necessarily want that experience. They want to know that LA was weird. (laughs) 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 And so I feel like it's that way with art too, that maybe the average reader is only going to go out to one of a hundred of the things that I recommend, but maybe they just want to know about the other stuff. Like I can't ever see a dodo bird, but I kind of want to know about it. Right. I guess I'm thinking more from the artist end where I'm like, I would be so frustrated if I made a painting that was literally visible for three days. I'm not thinking about it even from the audience point of view. I'm just thinking of like, how would I evaluate a painting that you just didn't, you know what I mean? I'd be like, look, I did something special and novel, but I would also just be like, I don't get the thing that I love about it out of it, you know, but that's... But you're a painter, which is a very different experience. Not your problem. Well, let's talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever wanted to make art yourself? Uh, no, no, no. I think my art is my writing. That's how I see it. Do you have a book Uh, that you're going to write? Um, I. Well, I have an artist monograph I actually need that I've started and I need to finish it, but the LA Times job is so insane that I haven't worked on it in the way I'm supposed to. It's Juan Sanchez, a New York painter. Okay. Ironically, I moved to LA to write a monograph about a New York painter. (laughs) He was around a lot, like in the 80s, uh, did work with General Idea with uh, a, a number of other 
he sort is of like identity politics. Incredibly difficult to Google, I assume. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, with a name like Juan Sanchez. And actually, there's some 18th century Spanish painter also named Juan Sanchez. So, <laughs> so it's not the 18th century Juan Sanchez. It's the alive Puerto Rican from Brooklyn Juan Sanchez. So I need to do that monograph. I have the interviews done, and I've got some of the research done. I need to finish going through transcripts and just sit down and write the monster. Is it going to be like a coffee table book, and no, your part is the no, text, or it's be, like a biography kind of thing? It's a biography, photos, about 20,000 words, so, so not did, a like, full— like these collage things? Yeah, he does these collage things that are very much like altars that have religious If you were going to write other things, with, like books, would they be like that kind of thing? Like no, you take artists no, that you like I actually— I have a book I'd like to write. It has nothing to do with art. No, let's hear about it. <laughs> Ideally. <laughs> I have spent, uh, it has to do with Costa Rica and a good friend I made there. Um, his name is Jerry. And he's a cowboy. And he lives in the jungle. And he's bipolar. And this interesting combination of high and low. Like the kind of person who will quote, E.O. Wilson and then talk about banging whores like all in a single breath. <laughs> he just represents something really interesting to me on a number of levels. One is his comfort with nature, which I don't intrinsically have. Like, I appreciate it. But uh, he lives in the... He lives in it and he can't live without it. Some of that has to do with, with his mental illness. Yeah. He just feels more comfortable in a kind of natural environment. The, the city kind of amps him up in ways that he does not find very healthy. And he's just got this wild and interesting life. You know, on one of his manic episodes, he ended up hanging out with a Mexican circus in Mexico and playing like the guy in the audience that gets roped in for the act. He was like the, a shill. <laughs> yeah, he was the shill <laughs> in the audience. You know, he's almost died on a couple of occasions. He ended up in an immigration jail in Costa Rica once on another manic episode where he was busted on the streets of San Jose, like taking his clothes off and he had no ID. And so he ended up, he spent a week in immigration jail. You're a reporter. Yes. Like, that's your thing. It's yes. like you find something interesting and you tell people about yes. it. There's analysis, but that's yes. not your main thing. Really, when it comes down to it, I'm a storyteller. Right. I'm a storyteller. And journalism is one way of telling stories. I guess that's how I distinguish myself from a critic, is that I'm not there to evaluate things. There's some evaluative... But, I mean, a lot of your stuff is kind of meta. It's like, look at all these people reacting to the Broad Museum. Yeah. Not, here's what I think. Oh, you mean like when I rounded up the Broad's Yelp reviews? <laughs> I am pretty <laughs> proud of that piece. That was, that was poetry. <laughs> like, almost like if I'm just like your tweets and stuff, they tend to be about what happened or what people said. Like, you're almost like more interested in what critics, the fact that critics said something. Yes. Than about saying it yourself. Yes. Like, oh, Jerry Salt doesn't like that. Well, I, that's why I consider myself a little bit more of an anthropologist. I always feel like a step removed from it. I mean, I don't teach, I don't curate, I don't write criticism. I'm not an artist. I'm not espousing one school over the other. I don't have a horse in the race. Right. I'm just there to kind of take it in. You but you, yeah, you're like, who's putting on a good show? Well, yeah, show. who's got a good story? Who's putting on a good show? Who's got something interesting to say? Who's doing something plain old weird? 
Yeah. You know, or funny. Like, I, it's that balance, again, of, you know, the serious essay about race with, like, let's take a look at the Broads Yelp reviews. But <laughs> also, you seem to always be looking for um, the same thing in everything. Like, this cowboy, mm-hmm. the way you're describing the Costa Rican cowboy is, like, he's a spec— he's a human, not a yeah. spectacle, I'm sure, you, you know. But you're looking at him as, like, a weird thing— a, a novel, interesting, complicated thing yeah. in the same way that, like, this tree ceremony is. Exactly. Like, it's a thing that I saw, and I'm going to tell and you that really I saw it. it's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, in the and in the case of Jerry, someone who's also just taught me a lot, who's kind of taken me outside myself, you know, I'm not the big outdoors woman, and he has pushed me into some adventures that I probably would have never done on my own. I guess why I find him fascinating is he's from this completely different walk of life with an experience that doesn't really overlap my own, yet highly articulate, very funny, and has a good sense of the absurd. And that's something that I'm always interested in, is the absurd. I like the absurd. I like pointing out the absurd. It's a good thing you (laughs) live in L.A. I revel in the absurd. And Jerry has a highly cultivated sense of the absurd. And so I think that's why we get along, even though we're very different. That makes sense to me. Yeah. And so, and I think that motivates probably like some of the goofier pieces that I do. Oh, John, do you want to ask Carolina what her parents think? (laughs) (laughs) Because you always ask that. It's like, usually when 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 people are are, are visual artists, you know, I'm always interested in how are your parents dealing with this? Your your title is much more respectable. So are your parents approving of what you're doing? <laughs> yeah, generally. I mean, I think my mom is very relieved that I have a full-time job with benefits now. Because then I don't... <laughs> I, I, See? I, They're happy. I don't have to go to the dentist in Peru. <laughs> like, but do they, like, read the things and be like, what is even is my this? My mom reads... My mom reads my stuff. In fact, she's really funny. She sends me text messages whenever something's on the front page of the paper. Oh, because she knows. Yeah, because she's like, oh, because she lives in L.A., and so it's like, oh, I see your cover of the calendar section today. Good, you know. (laughs) But it's more like keeping tabs, I guess, on on my status as to where the story is in the paper than the actual story. I mean, she will comment on some of my stories. I mean, it's just like the art press in general. Yeah. It's like who's in art form is important. What it says what is it not says important. What it says is irrelevant. And then, yeah, I think she's happy I have a job and she's happy that I'm doing what I want to be doing. Yeah. I think she's given up on the idea that I'll be like a lawyer and make a lot of money. Finally. <laughs> Already. It's like the 10th time I was going to Costa Rica to hang out with Jerry and I had to explain to her who he was. You know? <laughs> I might write a book about a cowboy. I might write a book about a bipolar cowboy who lives in Costa Rica. Or just hang I out. Find, yeah, or just hang out. A constant part of your writing in about art in LA is about Latin American artists mm-hmm. and you're talking about like there's two art world. There's like the industry. Yeah. The idea of the LA art world. It's like Mike Kelly, mm-hmm. John Baldessari, Ed right. Ruscheh, Cool right. School. Right. It's like there's an idea of LA artists, and there's like you look at art in LA, and it's like half of the artists are Mexican. Yeah. So and I don't women, know. <laughs> Asian, and Wait, black. There are women making art. <laughs> I no so figure. Oh, yeah. I mean, do you want to talk about like? Doing that, trying to, trying to, how do you talk about that in the LA Times? Is there like special effort you make or like, well, I don't know, anything? I mean, I think about it in general, you know, not just Latino <laughs> artists, but African American artists and Asian artists and women. And, and I think of 
what is LA as a city? Yeah. And how can I represent that in my art writing? I think it's less a concerted effort of, oh, I must write about black artists or Latino artists. I think of it as I need to cover LA. Like my job at the LA Times is to cover LA. Yeah, I mean, I guess I brought up Latino art specifically because yeah. you will. Ref- I have an affinity to it. You will reflexively bring up Latino, like your tweet will be like, "Oh, this article totally forgot." You know, like that is. Yeah. It's not like you're not making an effort. Well, anyway. yeah, exactly. It's like, that is like there are certain people who are like they will reflexively just exactly. that's their thing. You know, and I bring it. I mean, I bring it up a lot because I feel like LA is fifty percent plus Latino. Right. It has a Spanish name. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it used to be Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we're two and a half hours on the, from the border, depending on traffic. Yeah. It is a city that has had successive waves of Latin American immigration, you know, not just from Mexico, but from everywhere else. And in a way, it is this Latin American capital. When people talk about L.A. art and that, is not included, I, I don't know how they then can describe it as L.A. art because what is L.A. but yeah. the city's kind of inherent Latin American presence that goes back hundreds of years. I think it's partially rewriting the history books too, you know, when you think about what groups like OSCO were doing in the 70s, you know, right. uh, and what different painters were doing. And it gets overlooked or it it doesn't get written about as part of the, the mainstream, yeah. as part of the story. It gets written about separately. Like, okay, we're now going to talk. I mean, I notice this all the time. It's like people will list LA artists and they'll be like, and the Chicano Collective OSCO. And I'm like, that's interesting. You didn't racially identify anyone else in this list, yet Osco becomes the Chicano Collective. And so it's still this thing that's different. It's separate. It's a part. What I want to do is mainstream it. Right. Like, it should be. It is the mainstream. It should be the mainstream. And so I do make an effort of that when I write stories. Like, I, I just did a story about, I really enjoyed doing the story. I'm particularly proud of it of uh, the history of the downtown L.A. art scene in the 70s and 80s. It was just this really fun story of going back to people who had been here uh, when, you know, there was no single drip coffee to be found. And when downtown Los Angeles was a pretty rugged place and they were doing crazy performances and setting things on fire and doing interesting sculpture and leaving it outside for homeless people to employ and... That's been kind of overlooked with all of this talk about downtown L.A. and the arts district. Like, people don't discuss it. And as part of that, I mean, I would read all these stories about downtown L.A. And there would be, like, a certain set of artists that would be mentioned, often white. And, for example, I just had happened to know that Gronk, one of the members of OSCO, this collective, has lived in downtown since the late 70s. And so in talking to him... He was very much a part of that, but he was a part of other things, too. Yeah, he lived a block or two away from here. Oh, wow. I'll go say Um, hi. Yeah, he's really funny. And so I feel like it's it's these things, they get written as almost like separate but equal. Like, we're going to talk downtown artists now. So they talk about this core group of largely white downtown artists who were working here in the 70s and 80s, not realizing that maybe downtown had other streams of thought uh, running into it. So for me, it's important, like, to just write about it as if it's... It is mainstream. So well, I mean, write about it. That I mean, I way. think it runs largely into what you were saying earlier about there being like there's the art industry. So mm-hmm. it's like if an artist makes it across the water from being an artist of interest to people who care about creativity yeah. to like oh, I have a career. Everyone has to write about me 
whether they like me or not yeah. and say I'm good or bad, those artists end up being like mostly white and mostly male at this yeah, point. And so exactly. it's like you not only have to write more about them, but that, that commercial gulf makes it a thing. Journalism is the first draft of history. So I always see it as. You got to rewrite it. Yeah, um, I got to rewrite it. And that means like pounding it, you know. And it was to, to some degree, it was a frustration I shared in New York too, because New York is. Yeah, it's is, very Puerto uh, Rican. another majority minority city with like a huge Puerto Rican and Dominican population. Not that you would ever know by going to the average art show. Now that you're at the, the LA Times, do you feel like you have responsibility? Because on your blog, you pretty much write whatever you want. Yeah. But also not think you have to balance anything. You're yeah, just writing exactly. about what you want to write about. No, it's and a greater... And as a freelancer, you 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 got a job. Yeah. You're like, yes, right. Yeah, It'll I would write anything. whatever. But once you're at the LA Times and you're writing every day, do you, do you think in terms of like, I, I have a responsibility now? Yes. I have to be a little bit more careful because I feel what I say has the weight of the LA Times behind it. Yeah. And so... I can't just go on there and be like, so-and-so's an idiot. <laughs> I might think it, but, you know, it's the LA Times right. saying that it's a bigger platform. It's more power. I mean, how much more is debatable, but it is more power. And I also feel that I do have a responsibility to balance stories between little things, big things, important things, funny things. The diet needs to be balanced. Ultimately, I see my job as an LA Times reporter is to cover LA. And LA is a broad and expansive thing that means everything from the Broad Museum opening to, you know, right now, the other day, I did some reporting on an arts education program that the Museum of the Holocaust has that where they send Holocaust survivors into uh, schools and then the kids meet with them and then they the kids all make like an artwork inspired by their experience of talking to the survivor and it's this really interesting way of using art to tell a story about history and to get kids engaged and kids many of like from central american countries and that are probably dealt with some heavy shit from wherever they're from or their parents were from and so that's not the typical oh so and so has a gallery opening story right. but it's an important story about how art is being used in Los Angeles to animate history. Right. So I feel like I have a responsibility to cover those types of stories. Art is human interest, art is art, art as absurdity. Do you get to go around a lot or is this mostly like phone in internet stuff? I do for the feature stuff, for like Q&As, uh, if I'm interviewing an artist I will always see their show obviously. That and makes you better than some people I fact-checked when I was at <laughs> Art Forum. Because you'd be like, this is in the catalog, but not in the show. No, and I get invited to do, write stuff on shows all the time, and I can't because I didn't see the show or whatever. And, right. But I always see the show. And then for, for stories, say, such as this one about the Holocaust Museum, I went and spent a morning in a classroom watching how this worked. Partially because it tells a better story than if I just interview everybody over yeah. the phone later, but also, also I wanted to see it for myself. You deal with pitches all day, right? Like people I deal pitch with you. pitches all day, do you, all the whole damn day. Do you choose your stories out of the pitches, or like I, ever, or is it just uh, like I will, I will. You know, there, I get a lot of crap pitches. With, you know, people who put me on like the Kardashians red carpet email and right, do yeah. I want it? yeah so I get a lot of that kind of crap or it's like it's national mojito day here's some mojito recipes for your blog I'm like thank you <laughs> I get crap like that uh-huh. but then 
you know, the best publicists are the ones who have a sense of the kinds of things that I want to cover and will reach out to me specifically and say, hey, I think you might be interested in this. I do review the press releases that come to me. And I will, How if I see something. How long does that take? Like the press way, releases and way. the pitches, like just reading them. Is that like an hour a day? Is I mean, like- the thing is usually, uh, I, it's probably like a couple days a week that I'll sit down and look at them. Hmm. But I will respond to stuff that comes on press releases that I'm interested in. And then I will respond to pitches. Like I got this, or someone had forwarded it to me. This is one of those bizarre corners of LA stories of this guy who was, it was during Art Basel and it's this performance artist named John Kilduff and he was doing this event called Art Basel and it was a mini fair in his backyard and he built like little mini walls and people were bringing mini art and they were surrounded by basil plants and they were having an opening and he built like, he painted the step and repeat out of cardboard on his garage door so that, you know, you could pose in front of the Art Basel step and repeat. The whole thing was hilarious. I mean, it was just this gag. Right. And somebody forwarded me the announcement. And I ended up You're doing, like, I have to go. I, I was like, I am going to Van Nuys this, this fucking was made second. for me. This was made for me because it was the spoof of what was happening. But it was also just, again, telling the story of, like, here are the funny, interesting. And then the fact that all of these different artists sent him little miniature works to hang in these like little mini booths that he made you know each one was like a foot square yeah that's he good. had this the best one i actually couldn't show it online was these ceramic sculptures that were rather like pre-columbian cycladian cyclate cy- cycladic looking yeah, that's the word. and one of them was this penis kind of coming out of the earth this big <laughs> penis coming out of the earth i, mean, I just thought it was fantastic <laughs> These, like, basil plants. Backyard. (laughs) Goofy. (laughs) Meta. Dicks. (laughs) There was dicks. Royal flush. We are covered. (laughs) With a step and repeat. So pretty good. I'm like, I'm in the box. What is this box? (laughs) Square. (laughs) I'm here to... The, I just noticed you were bubble. doing something weird, and that's good. I'm like, are you doing something weird in your backyard? A 15-minute musical. Well, it's got to have something to it. I mean, I get lots of invitations for... You're going to get a lot more. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. Any more than I already get, I'm not... <laughs> exactly. So I do review all the pitches. A lot of them are crap. A lot of them, people don't have a sense of what it is what I cover. And then a lot of them are also... Come review the show. And I'm like, I don't review shows. You're going to have to hit the critics up for that. I do profiles. or yeah. And and for that, there there has to be a little bit of a story. Because I do Q&As and profiles and walk-ups and features, it can't just be like, it's so-and-so's latest paintings. This is his sixth show with the gallery. Like, I need a little right. something to go on. And sometimes you will get these publicists. No, it's not even that. It's like this series was inspired by, I don't know, his trip to a Bolivian tin mining town. Okay, that's something I can wrap. Tin mining. Everybody listening. (laughs) Artists that live in LA. (laughs) Tin mining town. And just so you know, I have been to a Bolivian tin mining town, so so you you, cannot bullshit. (laughs) Say it's a Paraguayan (laughs) tin mining town. You'll be fine. The Chaco. Go to the Chaco. (laughs) Nobody goes to the Chaco. (laughs) The other day, I got the best press release ever, which was, sometimes I save them, the particularly good ones. And it was a press release about how, I don't know if you guys heard, but a 
Adele had seen Katy Perry post a selfie from inside the Yayoi Kusama at the Broad. Okay. And so she was so inspired by it, she wanted uh, a video that mimicked the inside of the Kusama. And so I get this press release from this publicist (laughs) saying... The artist who inspired, you know, Katy Perry and Adele is coming into her own or something like that. Oh, it was like a Yayoi. Yeah, I saw that one on Twitter. It was like a pitch about Yayoi Kusama via (laughs) the celebrity mechanism of Katy Perry and Adele. And I was like, oh no. (laughs) I'm like, I can't. I do save the really bad ones. A friend of mine and I are going to work on a zine of really bad Press, art press releases or really bad press releases in general but since we mostly get art it's going to be about art so oh, like you know, stay tuned your, your press release can be <laughs> featured thanks for listening to this episode of We Eat Art check out our guest Carolina Miranda his latest work I have an artist monograph I actually need that I've started and I need to finish it it's Juan Sanchez a New York painter it's not the 18th century Juan Sanchez it's the alive Puerto Rican from Brooklyn, Juan Sanchez. Also, I have more of my artwork than my Tumblr at the pen, or just Google John Mingus. And Zach has a new book with Chana Maivo coming up October 4th. Next podcast, we'll be talking to uh, Raymond Pettibone. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at Weed Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at Weed Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. Weed Art is sponsored by no one yet and is produced by Papen and Mnemonic Recordings. Our sound producer, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. All right, does this make any difference? Yeah, I think so, right? <laughs>